0: Okay. Hi, everybody. Uh, Let's get started. I've got a fair amount I want to get through today. So um, the first thing I want to do is start by just having a quick refresher, a quick run back through the Baker stuff we talked about last week, um, just to make sure that we're all hundred percent on the same page as to what exactly we're doing there, how it fits within our broader admin law concept. Then we're going to get into bias. We're going to do it in a slightly different order than the book, where the book did the idea of tribunal independence first, and then the concept of bias. I find it works better to flip it around. So we'll be talking about bias. We'll do the sort of broad concepts of bias the book talks about before visiting the Kretzian case, which we'll see illustrations of those ideas being applied. Then we'll get into the concept of tribunal independence. I doubt that we'll get fully through tribunal independence today, but that's okay because you have a case assigned for Friday, Oceanport, that's about tribunal independence, and which also lands some of the constitutional ideas I'm going to touch briefly on at the outside of today's lecture. And the Oceanport case is discussed pretty extensively in your book, so you should feel pretty familiar with it if you've read that chapter before you read it for Friday. Um, but it's an important case, and I would like you to have a look at the excerpts I've highlighted from the case, because there's not just good discussion of tribunal independence and the constitutional interaction between tribunal independence and the common law, uh, but also there's good overview, high-level administrative law principles that are set out there. So it's a good check-in to make sure the big picture is still fitting, is still working well. Um As a sort of broad point, I think it's important to touch on um, the book mentions a whole lot of cases, right? And you may be wondering, do I really need to know all these cases? Do I have to brief them as if they were assigned reading, if they're just mentioned in the book or maybe even mentioned in a footnote in the book? And the short answer is no. The cases that I want you to Really know of as cases to draw upon for examples on your final, etc., are the cases that I assign independently as reading, and that's why there are cases that are doubled. That there'll be something on the book and there'll be the case to read also. With the book, I'm not looking at the uh, the cases as the thing to draw out. I'm looking at the concepts and the ideas. So if you're getting the concept, say of Um, tribunal independence and concerns around uh, full tribunal meetings and why this can compromise independence. You know, I don't care that you know Consolidated Bathurst and Tremblay and all the examples the book has. What really matters is the concepts. So with the book, think concepts. With the cases, think that these are examples that are um, either really important cases that I just think you can't not read or good illustrations of these concepts, the books um, developed being applied in practice. And, you know, those are the ones you want to know the facts so that you have a a framework to understand how these things really apply. Any questions? All right, excellent. So let's get back into just a quick recap of Baker to make sure we're all situated. I was thinking back on my lecture last week, and I think that I didn't do a good enough job Sort of situating us at the outset before we delved into Baker and I think some people were a little bit lost as to where we were I tried to recap it at the end of last lecture but there's no harm in just one more time quickly making sure we're all on the exact same page as to where exactly the Baker analysis falls within your broader framework and so you want to think procedural fairness one of the two key pillars of administrative law along with substantive review Some call it reasonableness review, but it's the review of the substance of the decision. That's next week we're starting that. Procedural fairness, that you get there in a fair way, and it starts to break down in analysis when you have to ask yourself first, well, was there even a duty for this tribunal to be fair to this individual person? You have the test uh, that's in the book, and I mentioned it a few times. the test of a public authority not acting in a legislative way below a duty of fairness to people whose rights, privileges, or interests are affected by a decision. So you have that test. Is there a duty to apply at all? If so, then you have to decide, well, what's it going to take to satisfy that duty of fairness? And you want to just be thinking here, minimal standards. What's the minimal standard that's going to be satisfactory that a decision can stand? not optimal fairness, but what are the minimal standards of fairness? And when you're trying to work through that, you want to think there are some things that are going to be binding and just going to answer my question, and those are statutes or regulations. If the legislature has directly through a statute demanded that a procedure be followed or not be followed, and a story that has to be followed or that can't be followed caveat that I'll get to in one second. Regulations are sort of subspecies of legislation. The legislature has empowered somebody to set out in regulation specific rules. So long as those regulations are valid, and we'll touch on that again in the delegation class later in this course, as long as those regulations are valid, they are going to apply, and they're going to apply at the same level as statutes. They must be followed. Now, inevitably, in practice, and certainly on your exam, I'll try to write it as such, that the statutes and regulations don't tell you the full story, that there's some questions left outstanding, there's some room for uh, the tribunal to go different ways in its potential procedure. That's when Baker comes in. Now, you don't have an answer in a statute. So where do judges look when they can't find an answer in a statute? Well, not just here, but in lots of different areas, you have to look to the common law, you know, the set of judge-made law that will fill out the statutes and fill out the legal framework. Baker is the common law considerations that you want to look at when deciding what level of procedural protections constitute that minimal floor that a tribunal has to get to and they've set out five considerations and these considerations are said to be non-exhaustive but they haven't really been expanded upon and we went through these in some detail last class I'm not going to rehash that fully Um, but the five considerations the nature of the decision and you want to think this is that one that really turns on is this more of a court-like process and a court-like decision or is this more purely administrative somebody asking for something from the government and there being no adversarial context or anything like that. You know, nature of decision, in essence, how court-like. The nature of the statutory scheme, we recall, uh, really the, the add here is the question of is this the end of the road? Is there any more internal review, internal appeal mechanisms within the statutory scheme itself? Or is this final and conclusive once this decision is made such that the only recourse you would have is to go to the courts. If it's final, that would suggest more procedural protections should be afforded before that final decision is made. Then you have importance, and that's pretty self-explanatory, but you want to remember that there really is a broad array of different levels of importance you could get to. And there are some things that are of the absolute utmost importance that do get handled in administrative proceedings you know, whether you can stay in the country, where you can live, whether you can have your employment. And so when you have something that doesn't rise to those extreme levels, well then, you know, even though it may be important to the individual in the, in the context, it's not going to push to the highest level of fairness available. Um, the idea of legitimate expectations, we spent a fair amount of time on and we'll recall that it really stands a bit apart because it can be a complete answer to the uh, standards the courts are going to require. And it asks if the tribunal has clearly led you to believe that a particular procedure will occur or a particular result will happen. And if so, the courts may require further procedural protections, either to give you, you know, that procedure that was promised, or if it's a substantive outcome that was... Uh, you were led to believe would happen. They may require further procedure before they can depart from that substantive outcome. But I'll say it again, it's not a guarantee of that substantive outcome. It's a guarantee of adequate procedure before you don't get that outcome. Uh, The final one is this choice of procedure. And this is the one that really asks did the legislature sort of demonstrate that they intend to have the tribunal have some discretion over their procedure? And this gets at concepts like does this tribunal have some expertise that would bear on its ability to understand what a proper and fair procedure is? this reminds the court, I think, that we're not talking about optimal process, that there are a range of different things that may get you there. And when the legislature has shown, hey, I really want this tribunal designing its procedure, this is a sign to the courts that there may be sort of a broader range of minimal things that would satisfy fairness, and the court should be reluctant to interfere by imposing something on them. So I said the first three factors are um, quite sort of clearly push you up or down a sort of procedural fairness spectrum. The final two factors are a little bit anomalous and have a slightly different way they resonate. Um, But these are all the considerations that you bring to bear when engaging in that task of deciding what does the common law require. What does the common law require in terms of minimal fairness, you know, before I will say as a judge, this was unfair. The legislature never should have, or never would have, never did intend to allow you to be unfair. So because you're unfair, you've exceeded your jurisdiction and the decision can't stand. Any questions on that? Okay, hopefully that all sounds familiar, and maybe even sounded boring because you feel like you got it. But I think it's important just to, you know, recap that high level, and then, um, you know, as you go through your studying, you're going to find the details, you know, do become uh, pretty broad. And you want to remember too, just to situate yourself in the first procedural fairness lecture. Most of the time, we're talking about Baker. We're talking about the minimal procedure that will be needed to satisfy that Audi alterum partum idea of procedural fairness. What does it take for somebody to know the case and have the opportunity to meet the case? And all these ideas of discovery, oral hearing, cross examination of witness, notice, they all are subsets and go to that idea of Audi alterum partum. Hear the other side. Right to know the case and an opportunity to meet the case. So that's sort of where this usually is all situating towards. Final thing I want to just touch base on is just to be totally clear that if the statute directs something, and this could be a specific statute, the enabling statute, could be a general statute like the Canadian Bill of Rights or the Administrative Tribunals Act if it's invoked by that enabling statute? This is a complete answer, and the one little thing to keep in the back of your mind is, as long as that statute's constitutional, right? And that's a given for any time I say there's a statute, it has to be constitutional, but it is conceivable that you could challenge the constitutionality of a statute, especially one that uh, said, some procedure was not necessary, you know, in the circumstances when it otherwise really would have been to um, make a fair process. And that's, you know, again, just that high-level idea you have to have in mind. Um, If the legislature says that this process is going to be unfair, there isn't room for the judges to come in and say, well, common law, I would presume that you wouldn't do that." they explicitly said it could be unfair. So if there's something that doesn't meet what would be the common law minimal standards, but is expressly prescribed by legislation, it's going to apply unless you could argue that statute's unconstitutional. And the problem you're usually going to run into here is that there isn't going to be a good hook to trigger a charter argument. Uh, this isn't criminal law where you have the deprivation of liberty that is always going to be in the back of the uh, or a, 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 a potential that gets you a Section 7 argument. Uh, you're going to have to figure out whether in you know, the circumstances of a case there is a charter right at issue that's impacted by this procedural choice that's being made by a tribunal. And it's often not the case, but there are instances where administrative tribunals deal with things that get at Section 7 protected interests. Uh, Extradition has an administrative law component. Certainly when dealing with extradition, there's a Section 7 interest. And therefore, if you were to uh, have a statute explicitly saying that a procedure that otherwise was needed to be fair wasn't gonna be offered in the extradition context, you could have a section seven argument against that. Now I don't wanna get too far down this road because we're coming back to the charter in a few weeks. So if you think I'm just breezing through this and I'm gonna leave the charter, not at all the case, but I want you to just have that in mind in your procedural fairness framework that statutes are a complete answer to the question as are regulations so long as they're both valid, so long as the statute's constitutional, and so long as the regulation is properly issued. And that's the delegation question we're coming back to. So these are a few things that we're not leaving forever, but I think it's handy to have it sort of flagged in your notes. So when we do come back to it, you'll think, okay, this is filling in the picture that we were sort of alluding to in that procedural fairness class. All right, any questions? Okay, so leaving the review behind, let's move forward now into the question of bias. Bias in the administrative law context, uh, you know, is often related to this maxim, this Latin maxim, of nemo judex in sua causa, which I had on the board earlier the idea that no person should be a judge in their own case. The proposition that you have a right to a non-biased decision maker is of ancient vintage, obviously, and certainly isn't exclusively the purview of administrative law. It's obviously something that binds the judiciary also. However, I think it's a lot more complicated in administrative law than it is in uh, consideration of the rules that bind courts. And that's because of this this thing that just keeps arising in all of our discussions in administrative law, that there's going to be a lot of variability depending on the specific context at issue. And what's going to give rise to a real bias concern is going to differ for different tribunals with different functions with different statutory contexts with different um you know, classes of people who necessarily are going to be the people who can adjudicate things in those tribunals so there isn't an easy answer as to what is going to get to that level of, of bias in any given case there isn't the same level of predictability that you might find in a in the courts where you know you you kind of could put together a good sense of what's going to get to the level of disqualifying a judge in the administrative law context because there's so many different tribunal permutations that could be out there you may have a harder time getting to a point where you can definitely say this is what crosses the line And there's always that background thing with bias, which is you are expected to raise it with the decision-maker themselves, which is indeed the case for all concerns of procedural fairness. You're supposed to raise them and give the decision-maker a chance to cure them and not just sit back and hold on to them for a potential judicial review. And just to sort of sidebar that point, I don't think I've made it yet, but it's actually quite an important one. This idea that, you know, you need to be proactive in addressing and raising procedural concerns is really important for your practice. If you find that, um, you know, there's, there's some really procedurally problematic thing that happened at a tribunal, but the person you're representing didn't raise it, or you didn't raise it when you were the person, um, you know, helping them at that tribunal, if that's the case, can be a really big problem for raising it before the courts for the obvious reason that you want people to put everything forward and give the tribunal a chance to fix something and not, especially not be strategic. Like you might think to yourself, there's this little procedural mistake they made, It's not really a big deal, but why don't I see if I get the results I like? If I do, great. If I don't, I'll go complain about the procedure and get another shot at it. You know, that kind of thinking is kind of attractive, but the rule against that says you have to raise these issues the first time. So I wanted to just pause on that because it is an important, more broadly applicable point, uh, but it especially gets awkward, as I've mentioned before, in the bias context, because you are saying, you know, to this individual, I don't think that you can fairly decide this case. Uh, it's certainly not a um, a submission that's likely to, you know, engender much goodwill from that person towards you. And ironically, right, if you if you accuse somebody of bias, it can make them. <laughs> not that inclined to find for you. You know, you, you, It's the reality is that any decision maker is human, and if you annoy them, that's not a great position to be when you're trying to convince them to find for you. And every piece of litigation you want to make the court, you know, want to find for your side. And accusing them of bias is not getting off on the right foot usually. So we'll talk more about this towards the end of this uh, bias section, but I want to raise it at the beginning That there is this dynamic of you need to address this address this with the decision maker if you can if you don't it won't necessarily be a complete bar but it'll make it less likely a court will be willing to intervene and change anything so one thing that slightly slightly tempers the problem of raising it with the decision maker is generally what we're dealing with is a reasonable apprehension of bias test. So technically, what you're saying to the decision maker isn't, I think you're biased. It's, I think anybody objectively looking at this would think you're biased, which is, I guess, slightly better. But the reasonable apprehension of bias test, that's the same one that gets applied to the courts, right? That's the idea of what a reasonable person fully appraised of the circumstances, the relevant circumstances, think it more likely than not that this individual is not able to decide the matter fairly. You know, reasonable person fully appraised of the circumstances, think it more likely than not. This this individual's not able to decide the matter fairly. you probably heard that test before. That's the same test the courts get applied to. As always, though, it gets a little more complicated in administrative law because what does it mean to be fully appraised of the circumstances, to know all the relevant circumstances in administrative law? Well, it's a little bit more complex than it is to just sort of know, well, there's a court, there's a judge, there's, kind of know what's going on. I know what I expect from judges. And this is where the problem starts to arise that leads to the lack of predictability and where all this context comes in. Because there may be things that would be really problematic for a judge that start to be less maybe less problematic or maybe more inevitable when you get to some administrative law contexts. And what I'm getting at is things like, if I had a judge who I knew spent their entire industry, or their entire career, you know, working as a uh, lobbyist in a particular industry, and I had a case that involved that very industry and maybe companies that that judge had lobbied for. I might say, this is looking like an interesting bias argument. And that judge really might want to recuse themselves. You know, you worked for Tech Kemenko your whole career uh, as a lobbyist and a lawyer. And now you're a judge and you're trying to decide this tech case. You know, maybe you even touched it while you were a judge. These are all big problems. But in a highly specialized, regulated environment, you may need expertise in your administrative decision maker, and it may be the case that you have somebody who comes from an industry background who is the best hydrogeologist to understand a particular area in, you know, northeastern British Columbia to determine the impacts of fracking, uh, expected impacts of fracking. You know, on the on the water levels or on the uh, the groundwater. And maybe this person is literally the best, uh, you know, conceivable person to bring this expertise to understand the issues. And that type of a person is going to have worked for industry almost certainly, is going to have worked for the same companies that operate in that area. May very well have worked for the company that is before this tribunal. But if you want the best or you want somebody with the relevant experience to be making these decisions, the field of people to choose from may be really small, and it may be inevitable that there's going to be some things in their background that might otherwise, you know, give rise to a concern around bias. So the test would still be reasonable apprehension of bias, but we're going to put more sort of a burden on this hypothetical reasonable person to really think it through and to understand all the different sort of factors and considerations that could lead to, you know, seeing, is this really a problem or, you know, knowing what I know about the industry, the needs of this tribunal, the pool of potential people to do this. uh, I have to say this is okay. So, you know, the test is simple, but the application gets complex because of the need to be fully aware of context. Any questions on that? Okay, so I say the test is reasonable apprehension of bias, but there are circumstances where actually a different test is applied. So the default starting point The rule, I would say, is we're going to disqualify administrative decision makers where there is a reasonable apprehension of bias. But there are circumstances where even with a reasonable apprehension of bias, that won't be found to be a problem. And rather, in order to disqualify somebody, you'd have to satisfy what's called the closed mind test. That's discussed in the Kretzian case and briefly in the book, I believe, as well. The idea here is sort of intuitively, I think, correct. Once you start to think about the full scope of different functions administrative decision-makers play and the needs of governance in light of political uh, decisions that drive changes in policy. So I'll get to, you know, all those concepts. I'll start with the political decisions that drive changes in policy question. And you may remember me saying, the executive, I mean, if I, if I was going to draw these, the executive should take up the entire board compared to these two in terms of its breadth. And that includes decision makers at the absolute highest level of the government. And people at the highest level of the government are often ministers. And ministers are also politicians. They're members of the legislature who also have a function in the executive as a minister. They wear two hats. Inevitably, um, you know, legislators are politicians, and they are going to take a political stand on the issues of the day. And there are issues where there's just competing interests, competing concerns. And different political parties, obviously, are going to have different um, positions on the key issues of the day. So an example that I think is sort of easy to um, conceptualize in your mind and land within administrative law is the tension between environmental protection and resource development. So you could have a party come to power on a platform that says, you know, listen, we, have excellent natural resources in Canada. We have some of the best mining opportunities that are undeveloped in the world. We can do it in a more environmentally responsible way than other countries can or will. So it's going to come from somewhere. It should come from Canada. And we want to open up the government for for mining. And we uh, we want to get those jobs and we want to get the economic benefits and so you know vote for us and we are going to push this mining industry to places never been before oh sure that's a totally fine political pitch right that party comes into power somebody from that party is going to be a minister someone from that party is going to be the minister of mines well if you go before that minister of mines and you have a uh, environmental concern you have a concern around the impacts of a tailings facility on a lake or on a fish population. You might say to yourself, how can I get a fair decision from this person? You know, this is the person who's been pushing mining over environment for their entire political career and now is in power. Well, the law is not going to hamstring a government by saying, when you get to a really high level political decision, we're going to demand any, uh, freedom from any apprehension of bias. It's just not realistic. Is this person biased in favor of mines? I mean, they told you that 10 times in their, in their campaign. Yes, they are. But does that mean that they can't set high-level mining policy? No, it doesn't. Because that level of decision, it's in the executive, but that high level of decision-making, where you get to the real place where sort of political decisions start to resonate in the law, those types of decisions are going to attract the closed mind test. So you can't have a closed mind and say, I don't even want to hear about the environmental impacts to this lake. They are irrelevant to me that's a closed mind. But if you uh, if you say, listen, I'll listen to you, you know, I, I want to hear what, what you say about this. Now, my strong inclination is towards mining. We all know that. But I will hear you out. That's going to be okay at those high levels. So this closed mind test is I think kind of necessary in order to allow governments to govern at the highest levels of the executive but you shouldn't overread it and think that it permeates sort of down into the tribunals more broadly once you leave the real high level political decision making function of the executive then it would become a big problem to start to bring your political beliefs into your decision making process you know, if you were a residential tenancy decision-maker and you were to say, my goodness, I'm just really pro-industrial uh, development, and somebody were to come before you who was a rabble-rouser with Greenpeace and you were to uphold their, you know, their eviction on shoddy grounds, you couldn't point to your political beliefs, obviously. You know, it it, it falls apart very quickly when you leave the high-level political um, high level political decisions so in your conception you want to think what's the test usually reasonable apprehension of bias but with the context in mind that there's going to be a kind of an array of what's going to get you to that level of reasonable apprehension of bias then you want to think there's an exception for a closed mind test and the first exception for the closed mind test is these high level political decisions I'm going to give you the second exception for the closed mind test now. And that second exception where you're going to look at a closed mind test instead of a reasonable apprehension of bias is for purely investigative functions. Purely investigative functions are areas where nobody's rights are being decided at all. We are simply looking into things and then In a separate procedure in a separate thing we might determine something coming out of that investigation but you have to just keep in mind the executive is so broad so when you think about um you know the cra auditor you know they're part of the executive they're part of an administrative body now the cra auditor will investigate your business will look at your records, look at your receipts, put together information. But they don't, generally speaking, have the power themselves to impose penalties. Rather, they uh, report to a decision-maker who would then make the decision. And the nature of investigators and investigations is that you kind of have to operate on a presumption of suspicion. You know, you you have to assume the worst of people you're investigating to do a thorough job. You can't just show up and say, you know, I assume that your um, cleanliness of your walk-in fridge is just fine. Well, yes, indeed it is. Well, great. I won't even look. You know, you walk in, the restaurateur says, hey, don't bother. It's totally fine in there. You know, there's no old marinara sauce that's got a science experiment on it. Well, great. I wouldn't mind checking. You know, and then you could Gordon Ramsay and shut it down. The, the, um, so the the point though is that investigators don't have to be free of any apprehension of bias, and indeed a pretty good investigator is probably gonna seem a little bit biased against the person they're investigating. That said, they can't have a closed mind to exculpatory evidence, you know they can't have a closed mind where they're just looking to build a case against somebody and ignoring everything that's that's to that person's benefit if that were to be the case if you were to get an administrative decision that's based upon a shoddy investigation where you know relevant uh, exculpatory or mitigating evidence was just ignored or buried by that decision maker you could judicially review the investigation itself I've done that successfully actually. So the you know, everything that the executive does can be amenable potentially to, to judicial oversight. But if you're gonna argue that the investigator was biased, you're not gonna get there just on reasonable apprehension of bias. You're gonna have to get to that closed mind. I wasn't even looking at the exculpatory stuff. Any questions on that? All right. Um, this is a lot to get through over here. Yeah, go ahead. I have a question. Yeah. Um, is it the information gathered in an investigation then potentially used by the next step? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Exactly. But the that and that step needs to be free of a reasonable apprehension of bias. So the the investigator has an attitudeable attitudinal disposition that doesn't. That may seem a little bit biased against you, but they put together a case. But then, you, you, that phase is over. Then you move to the decision phase, and that person has to be free of a reasonable apprehension of bias. So you can't argue that the the investigation just needs to be set aside purely on the basis that this person seemed biased against you. But you can argue at the um, you know at the next level that that decision maker you know, they better be free of an apprehension of bias. And then you can make arguments, present your own case, say the investigation missed this. They've just put together kind of one side of an adversarial story that you're going to have a chance to meet. That's a good question, though, and I, actually, I meant to say, meant to make that point about the um, after the investigation. That's one of the reasons you can have a, you know, a, less of a freedom from bias is because there's going to be that check at that next stage. And, you know, that is just knowing the case to meet. What you're going to get from that, you still have the chance to meet it and the chance to meet it before a non-biased decision maker. Okay, good question. Um, Okay, let's keep going through. Uh, The next thing that we need to touch on at the outset before we get back into it is something that really gets confusing, I think, to a lot of people. And that's the difference between individual bias and institutional bias. And I don't have on the board, but I'll even tie in concepts of independence. Tribunal independence versus institutional bias versus individual bias are concepts that it's really easy to get a little bit confused on where the lines are drawn between these three things. I think it's fuzzy because concerns can resonate in both individual, institutional, or even independence. You know, the same concern can resonate in different places in different ways, but the concepts are distinct, and it is possible to define each one in a separate way. And to do so, I think I'll just you know come back to my diagram really. Um, so, individual bias. I'm saying that there's something wrong with this person who's making the decision. This person can't decide this matter fairly. Show the canyon diagram. So, if I say this individual, this one individual decision maker, you know, I'll just put him on the board as a little X. This individual can't make it fairly, decision fairly. Okay, individual bias. We'll talk about that in a second. Institutional bias, though, is when there's something internal to this tribunal that's making it seem like there can't be fair decisions in a number of cases. Something's happening at this institution. That's making it reasonable for a person to believe that there are multiple cases where a fair decision can't happen. Oftentimes, and we'll talk about this more, this comes from pressure from the tr- within the tribunal. So call this maybe the tribunal chair. Maybe is the um, is the source of this. Maybe the tribunal chair has a certain class of person that they don't particularly like, or the tribunal chair is interested in increasing efficiency at all costs. And they start putting pressure on their decision makers in a substantial or in a number of cases, hey, you have to, um, you know, we're, we're not entertaining that type of argument from that type of person anymore. You know, I've, I've had it with people uh, complaining about, um, you know, a, an eviction being on the basis of uh, discriminatory conduct, you know, I'm not gonna listen to that anymore. Um, you know, there's no such thing as uh, as that much widespread discrimination, ignore that stuff. Okay, well that, the, now you have internal to the tribunal some structure that is compromising the fairness of a number of cases. And we'll talk about other ideas um, of, of how the institution can lose the ability to say that the individual board members are free to decide cases in accordance with their own conscience and their own understanding of the law we'll talk more about that in a second but i'm just trying to situate what's individual versus institutional versus concerns of independence and so individuals decision maker institutional something from inside the institution is causing a problem independence is when there's somebody outside, like let's say it's a minister or somebody outside of the tribunal altogether, is somehow exerting influence over that tribunal, is doing something that's making that tribunal no longer able to exercise its statutory mandate and decide cases and matters you know, as they come forward but there's some external pressure coming in. So that's the real distinction between institutional bias and questions of tribunal independence. What's the source of the problem? Is the source something internal? OK, that's an institutional bias concern. Is the source external? or now concerned with tribunal independence. Does that distinction make sense? OK. So we'll situate, or we'll, we'll delve more into each one of these things now, um, but just keep that big framework as what we're talking about in mind as we do so. So we're gonna go through individual bias and then the Kretschian case, and then talk about institutional bias. Um, so individual bias is discussed in the book uh, and quite, um, I think, helpfully the book classifies there being sort of four categories of concerns that can lead to individual bias arguments. Um, I don't think that this is sort of well accepted, found in the jurisprudence fit him in one of these four things. I think this is the author being helpful and sort of classifying the things that she understands to have given rise to these concerns. So don't think of these as extremely rigid but think of it as helpful to sort of get a picture of what kind of things are out there that could lead to a problem. And so the first one that she mentions, uh, you know, is a fairly obvious uh, problem, having a pecuniary or material interest in the matter at hand. And obviously we don't want our decision makers to directly benefit or potentially lose from a decision that they're going to be making. The difficulty, as always, comes in drawing the line because there are any number of different ways in which somebody might stand to benefit or lose for a particular decision that's before them. And when it's going to cross the line to saying you can't make this decision because you're too invested can be very difficult to foresee or to ascertain. Because on some level there is any number of decisions that can affect an individual's own life. Uh, If you are involved in zoning decisions, you live in a neighborhood, right? And there being a new transit hub within a hundred meters of your house could increase your property value. There being sky or, you know, high rises in your neighborhood may decrease, you know, your enjoyment of your property. Uh, there's any number of examples where there is some really kind of indirect benefit or burden that a decision-maker may take on. Whether that gets to the point of creating a a bias concern, you know, you always have to come back to this test. Is it so much that a reasonable person fully understanding this tribunal, its constraints, the fact that you have to live in the city to be a city councillor, they're going to live somewhere, there are city councillors all over the city, um, you know, fully aware of that. Do you think it's unlikely this person is able to make a decision fairly? There are things, though, that are going to be farther along the line. The book talks about a decision maker who had stake or, uh, shares in a company that they were making a decision in relation to. Well, that certainly can be a problem, but again, not always. It's one thing if you are a major owner of a small, closely held company that's significantly impacted by a decision that you're being asked to make. You know, it's quite another thing if you're a mutual fund holder who has a few shares of Apple in your portfolio that you may not even realize you have, and you're being asked in some way to adjudicate upon Apple's interests. So the spectrum, again, is really broad, where you're going to get to a place where you're over the line is going to take a lot of contextual analysis. And because of that, you know, ultimately reasonable people are going to disagree and you may have um, a lack of predictability. But the basic concept is if you have a pecuniary interest, a money interest in the dispute that you're hearing, this may give rise to a reasonable apprehension of bias. The book has another good uh, point, quite a good point, that it could be non-pecuniary, non-monetary. It has the example of a uh, First Nation where the band council chose to evict somebody from a piece of housing uh, that they managed, and they were going to put a relative of one of the band council members in that house. And this was seen as giving rise to an apprehension of bias because there was a direct interest, and I'm getting a place to house my family member, that was, you know, directly implicated by the decision to evict this other person. So it doesn't have to be money. Now, again, you can imagine the context you need to know there. You know, a lot of First Nations are just uh, structured around their being um, family units, and each family unit has a represent, representative on the band council, you know. So there's, there's difficult context things that come up in every single one of these decisions. I don't want you to ever lose sight of how contextually dependent and complicated this can get. But the basic principle could be money, could be something other than money. If it's something that you're going to benefit from or lose from a decision, you may be getting into a world where there's a reasonable apprehension of bias. So any questions on that first one, personal or pecuniary interests? All right, let's move on to the second category that the professor um, who wrote the chapter recognizes, uh, which is a relationship with somebody in the dispute. And there are relationships that are going to get to a place where it looks like you're not able to decide a matter fairly. There are relationships where nobody would reasonably think that that would cause you to lose the ability to adjudicate fairly, and there are things in between. So very close relationships with a party to the dispute, obviously a problem. generally speaking, if you're the adjudicator and we're talking about one of the parties, it's going to be a pretty wide ambit of relationships that are going to be a problem. Contrast that, though, with when you have a relationship with one of the lawyers or someone, the representatives, there it's going to be seen as more constrained so if you were to say to me okay you know you're going to go to this tribunal um and you're going to be fighting against this other person you know about some dispute you're having and um the person you're fighting is the is the wife of the tribunal member you'd say forget it. Obviously not. That's not fair. The person that you're fighting against plays on the same beer league hockey team as the adjudicator. I still don't really want that to happen. The person you're fighting against, you know, goes to the same church as that person. Now we're getting farther removed. That's probably not going to be enough for me to think they're unable to decide the matter fairly. Are we graduate of the same university? Okay, now we're so far removed that I don't see any real personal relationship there at all. With the lawyers or representatives, you know, it may be that you you obviously don't want them to be the the spouse of the person deciding, but if they play on the same recreational sports team, that that may not be enough. So you're going to think that the personal relationships can be a problem with anybody involved in the dispute from the actual parties to their representatives but the level of connection between the tribunal and that individual um, that's gonna be a problem could vary. It's a thing when um, you become appointed a judge in British Columbia, you may or may not know this, that you have to make a list of lawyers that you don't think you could decide fairly if they were to come before you. And it's always like a bummer when you, somebody you know got appointed to be a judge and then you go and you're like, yes, I can certainly hear your case thought we were close. Uh, anyways, so, so personal relationships can be a source of bias. It makes sense intuitively, and, you know, if you want to just have one word of the day, it's context. Like, there's a lot of context you would have to know to decide whether this relationship crosses a line. And we'll see that in the next example, which is prior knowledge. And I'll just do this one um, quickly. Prior knowledge can be a problem because most tribunals operate on the presumption that they are only going to decide on the basis of the matters that the parties before them choose to put before the tribunal. You're not supposed to, as a decision maker, usually go out and do your own research. You're not supposed to go and... um, You know, and investigate matters yourself, gather evidence. You're supposed to just have the parties present their cases as they will, ask your questions and decide. Well, that's undermined if you have prior knowledge of the dispute. Uh, It's okay to have prior knowledge that's in the public domain. Everybody knows about this, more or less. You know, if you're doing the Huawei extradition case, you would have heard about it in the news. That's OK. But if you had spent every night you know, doing a deep dive into the background of Huawei and the dispute and you were um, doing independent research, et cetera, et cetera, now you're starting to get to a problem. Prior knowledge about the dispute just undermines the principle that you're supposed to rely on what the parties choose to present to you. And it causes obvious difficulties in that if you don't no matter how good of a researcher you are, you probably don't know the full story, probably not as well as the people who are actively involved in it, and it can lead to just misapprehensions, misunderstandings. Prior knowledge resonated in a really fascinating way in the we Way come case that's discussed in your book. So this is a judicial decision, obviously. Supreme Court of Canada question of bias based on prior knowledge attained through prior involvement in a proceeding. And I would say you could classify this as prior knowledge. And the next one I'll talk about, attitudinal, uh, because if you were involved in a case, you may have an attitude towards the side you were advocating for. Talk about that in a second. But We We Come was a uh, First Nations case, um, interesting case about the location of reserves and the Supreme Court of Canada decided the case 9 nothing. After they decided the case, it came out that Justice Binney had been at the Department of Justice at a very high level and had, in fact, worked on this very same piece of litigation as a lawyer for the side of Canada. We Weikum, the unhappy, or the, whoever was unhappy, I forget who was unhappy, whoever it was, whoever was unhappy, found out about this after the Supreme Court of Canada issued their decision and went back and said, you know, this decision can't stand. The decision maker had a reasonable apprehension of bias because they worked on this very case and did not disclose it. Now, I want to be clear that the outcome here of that not being found to be a problem is very much the exception ordinarily if you could show that somebody had prior involvement as a lawyer in a case that they decided as an adjudicator that's going to be a full stop you know moment you're going to that that person should be out so ordinarily that is going to be disqualifying prior involvement as a lawyer But word of the day context Context Save Justice Binney here. When you delved into the context of his previous involvement, it was at an extremely high level when he was touching on almost every major piece of litigation that Canada was involved with. He wasn't the part of the Council of Record, didn't make arguments in the case, provided high-level strategic advice perhaps. And you know, I worked at the Department of Justice, and the reality is that there are these committees that hear about every single big case, and they come before, yeah, you, know, you come before them once every two weeks or so, and they may hear 15 or 20 presentations on cases in those, in those uh, two or three hours. You know, the reality that you might even forget that you heard about a case 15 years later is, it's pretty reasonable. Uh, the chance that Justice Binney That it's even crossed his mind i think is pretty low to be honest uh, before the 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 issue was raised to him and so given the level of his involvement the time that had passed it was found to not give rise to a reasonable apprehension of bias but usually if the judge or the adjudicator was a lawyer it's going to be a huge huge problem also helpful, I think, was that this was a 9-0 Supreme Court of Canada decision, not him sitting as a single judge or even a 5-4 decision, which would, I think, give rise to a lot more, you know, concern, especially if he was in the, the majority. But the, um, the bottom line is prior knowledge or involvement is it can be a disqualifying factor prior involvement in the particular case almost certainly going to be a disqualifying factor, except there's always room for the full context to reveal that we don't actually get a reasonable apprehension of bias. Uh, I'll take the break now and then we'll come back, talk about a 2 disposition and then the Chrétien case. So let's come back at 11.40, so still have a lot to get through. <laughs> All right, I'm going to get back to it everyone. I'm going to get back by uh, starting with a good question that I had at the break. So the question I had at the break was, um, is there a policy concern around unrepresented individuals at accessible tribunals not raising procedural fairness concerns and then being shut out from raising them on judicial review? And that's a really great point. I wish that I had just addressed that when I was on that topic. Uh, And absolutely, there is. And I don't think that I was clear enough in saying that there is a rule that uh, expects and requires you to raise these things at first instance, but it is not absolute. Judges retain a discretion to hear things even though they weren't raised the first time around. And that's going to be exercised, especially in circumstances where there's a good case that the person didn't understand a procedure should have been given to them or didn't have an opportunity to fairly raise it, or there was some other impediment, maybe a language barrier, something like that, that prevented them from acting quickly at the right time. So it's not a hard and fast bar, but it is a rule that you have to contend with. And you have to contend with it, particularly when you as a lawyer see a procedural complaint that you can make, you better raise it. You know, that's, that's really where it needs to come down. If you have a Case that comes before you and there's a procedural fairness concern that wasn't raised as a matter of first instance don't write it off but know that you're going to have to come up with a good explanation for why it wasn't raised at first instance and the judge will have to exercise a discretion in your favor to hear it on judicial review for the first time i think that's a really good question though and i'm glad that we clarified that um, so coming back we're going to talk Attitudinal disposition, briefly, as another of the categories of bias. This is the one that I think you most naturally think of when you think of bias. I think of an ex or I think an excellent example of attitudinal disposition leading to a bias finding is the Baker case. Those notes are an example of an attitudinal disposition that made it seem unlikely to a reasonable person that this decision-maker could decide this matter fairly and not operate on prejudice and stereotyping. So a lot of the, you know, the concerns around bias that, that are front of mind fall under this attitudinal disposition. And obviously, um, as a society, there's been a lot more awareness of the pervasivity of bias. The pervasivity of bias Uh, and and stereotyping and prejudice and subconscious bias. And the law is still really trying to catch up with this. Um, The reality is that it's very hard to make an argument based on attitudinal disposition absent some really strong specific evidence of that person. And you're rarely going to get those Baker notes. The book has a very disappointing example in it, I hope you caught on this one, about a Immigration and Refugee Board member who had a statistical analysis done of them, and it was determined that they had let zero refugee claims in over a protracted period, and way below the average over a much longer period. And, you know, if you would like to have something close to objective evidence of likely prejudice against refugee claimants, it would seem like this sort of statistical evidence would be enough to get you there. But the court was unwilling to say this gave rise to a reasonable apprehension of bias. As was that person individually, it was raised with them, and they said, no, I'm not biased. And the court, or I don't appear biased to anyone, and the court uh, agreed. And the court said, well, this would make somebody want to ask more questions, but they'd wanna know more things before they decided you were biased. Like, um, you know, our case is assigned randomly. Maybe this person's only assigned very hopeless cases or, you know, other facts that you might want to know. Um, and the book does a good job of pointing out, well, how is the claimant supposed to know all those facts? That's within the, the purview of the board the bigger point, though, I think, is it just underscores if you have the sort of concerns around, um, you know, the systemic biases that exist in a society and how those might resonate when marginalized people have come before a body, even when you come with some pretty good statistical analysis showing it doesn't look like you're deciding this in a way that's um, to be expected and that seems to be disadvantaging a particular group, you know, you still may not get to the court agreeing there's a reasonable apprehension of bias. Those sort of individual bias arguments, absent the smoking gun, are really hard to make out. Um, That may change, and I think that um, I really think, as a slight aside, empirical study of the law, such as was done in this case, where you say, let's just look at this person's decisions what are their you know what are their predilections it's going to skyrocket with ai probably and as as a tool to to do this type of analysis i think we're going to learn a lot more about the way the law works in practice because we have all these incredible data sets and the tools now to comb through them and we're going to find out some pretty unhappy things i think about entrenched bias and other concerns about the way decisions are made in practice. And so the law is going to have to grapple with the findings that are going to come out of all this empirical analysis. Um, but you know, there isn't all that much reason to think um, that the court's going to be you know, quick to embrace uh, arguments that there's deep-seated attitudinal bias in the legal system, just judging by how it's been done before. But it's coming, for sure, and this is an interesting area to think about. And empirical study of law, especially harnessing, you know, the technologies that let you do it much quicker now, is something that I would suggest to anybody who wants to do, you know, further academic work in law is an area that is sorely needed. That's completely an aside. So, attitudinal bias, it can come up in this way we often think of. Um, You know, you're disposed against a particular person, group of people, Um, and can be shown through comments, potentially through this kind of empirical study. But it also can be demonstrated through conduct in the courtroom or in the hearing room. There can be a level of intervention as a decision maker that can give rise to an apprehension of bias, particularly if it's one-sided. So I'm sure many of you have had the opportunity to go you know, do some, do some court arguing, maybe through LSLAB or summer jobs, or uh, if not yet, you certainly will, and once you've appeared for a few different decision makers, maybe through moots, you'll find that there's different attitudes, and some people just love to get in with it, get in it with you, and, and have a discussion, have a debate, test your, your, um, your views and can, um, can challenge you, put the best proposition against your, your client's uh, stance to you firmly and squarely as if they believe it. And you can sit down feeling dispirited, but if the other side pops up and they get your best arguments, put them in the same way, ah, it's not a problem. That's just the judge's way of trying to get to the truth. But what's really dispiriting is when you get the rough ride and the other person just gets quiet and note-taking, you know? And there can be a level of interjection from a decision-maker that can get to a problem. Oftentimes, though, it's not in the context of the submissions where you're setting out, you know, my submission based on these facts? This is the law, and this is how it ought to wind up. Usually, it gets to be a problem when it's in the sort of the evidence-gathering phase of a hearing, where the judge just keeps interjecting, seems to be pressing towards one side and the way they're jumping in and questioning witnesses and things like that. Uh, So you want to think that behavior in the hearing room can get to a level where it rises to bias. You also want to know, it's really rare that this is actually found to have gotten to that level. And every time almost the unhappy litigant feels like in the hearing room, the decision-maker liked the other side more. So you're going to hear that. Uh, The whole hearing, I could tell they were in it for the other side. Uh, It's going to be hard to prove this. And so you'd need some pretty strong evidence, but it's not impossible. Okay. Any other questions on attitudinal bias? All right, so these are just categories of things that can give rise to individual bias concerns. you want to know generally these kind of things so you can spot them on an exam, spot them on your, your, um, in your work. Uh, but ultimately, you want to really focus in on, you know, do these concerns I've identified rise to a level that there's an argument that a reasonable person could think that this individual is not able to decide the matter fairly, more likely than not. You know, it's really drawing it back to that test and recognizing that, you know, the context, context, context is so key. All right, so I'm going to leave the book and jump into the Kretzian case now, and then we'll come back to the book to talk about um, uh, institutional bias and independence. And the Crutchian case is another case where individual bias was determined to exist. That's an interesting case. Um, I suspect that uh, not all of you would have been familiar with the sponsorship scandal, or perhaps it's something that you've heard reference to but are a little bit fuzzy on exactly what it was. And it was a big deal in the the 90s. Uh, So you come out of a Quebec referendum, the referendum that narrowly failed, like the 51-49 or whatever it was, referendum. And so Quebec is staying in Canada, but it's, it's it looks a little bit shaky at the time, right? You have a new premier of Quebec comes in and says, the last guy couldn't get the job done. I'm going to get the job done. I'm going to have another referendum when the time is right. So there's an error where there's an ongoing political campaign where the sort of nation's unity is at stake. This is also an interesting time politically because the Liberals led by Chrétien absolutely are dominating on a national political level. The Conservatives have split and there's two Conservative parties. Kim Campbell's party just gets, you know, absolutely destroyed. It goes from no, she's Prime Minister down to, to basically nothing. Um, the Liberals are firmly in charge, and believe it or not, the official opposition's the Bloc Québécois, uh, which, you know, hasn't happened since. So the, I don't think it's happened since. So the, um, the situation is such that dealing with the Quebec Separatist movement Is top of mind politically for the Liberals. Also, there's not a lot of effective checks on the Liberals because that's what happens when one party really has all the power. And, you know, as I think history often shows, um, lack of effective checks on government, you know, can lead to situations that can look a little bit unseemly, and that's what happened here. So you had the Liberal government decide they're going to engage in a campaign aimed at promoting national unity, targeting it, especially in Quebec, by advertising through sponsoring a whole lot of programs, a whole lot of events to make clear to the Quebecers the benefits that they're seeing from Canada, from being in Canada, from national unity. So government decides to spend its money in that way, but the problems arise in the way the money is spent, where it becomes clear that contracts... Well, it, I think, yeah, I think it became clear. Contracts are being funneled to... Um, individuals you know perhaps friendly to the liberal government or to people who had some power over those contracts there was concerns around overbilling underperformance lack of effective oversight you know all the classic concerns you have where there's a big pot of money and there's you know it's being spread out in a way that that causes some concern it all comes to light and it leads to a commission. Um, You're probably familiar with the concept of commissions. They happen with some regularity in Canada. Commission is the idea that we're going to get to the bottom of something by appointing a commissioner to look into some issue and to issue a report. So one of the early ones was the Braidwood commission about the Mackenzie Valley uh, pipeline. Some of the famous ones involve the um, Missing and Murdered Women Inquiry. Uh, You recently had the uh, Cullen Commission on Money Laundering. Um, There was the uh, Commission on Salmon. Uh, And oftentimes these commissions become named after in in the popular context and associated with the commissioner, the individual leading it, who's almost always a retired judge of high esteem. So Cullen uh, was the Associate Chief Justice of the British Columbia Supreme Court. Um, The Missing and Murdered Women Commission was headed up by Wally Opal, who was a BC Court of Appeal judge and also a very successful politician. Uh, So these commissioners are very much in the media. They're probably about as high profile of an administrative decision-maker, executive actor, as you could conceivably be. And that's, in essence, what became a problem here in this commission into the sponsorship scandal, which became known as the Gomery Commission after Justice Gomery, a Quebec judge. There's a BC judge Currently named Gomery, a different person. Uh, this Justice Gomery of, of the, this commission actually sadly passed away from COVID complications. But the um, the commission has a mandate to look into and investigate the facts surrounding this um, you know quote unquote sponsorship scandal and to issue recommendations coming out of that sponsorship scandal. And ultimately, Commissioner Gomery makes factual findings in a report and issues recommendations, and some of that does not reflect very well on Prime Minister Chrétien. So he's very upset with this and brings a judicial review of the report setting out the commission's findings. And he alleges that it was done in a procedurally unfair way and that there was bias. So I like this case for two reasons. First, it does a run through the Baker factors. So I hope you had a chance to read that and see sort of a nice summary of how these factors would be applied to what's a sort of interesting administrative decision maker, a commission of inquiry. And there are a few things I'd like to highlight when the court's going through these factors So they start with the nature of the decision, right? And that's where we say, well, how court-like is this? And they say, well, it sure looks pretty court-like, doesn't it? You know, you have a commissioner who's holding this. You have people represented by by counsel. Witnesses are being examined, being cross-examined. So there's certainly an element that looks pretty court-like but they do note also that, well, there's a twist here, not in what it looks like, but what it's actually trying to do. And what it's trying to do is investigate and find facts, but not actually issue any order or ruling that directly has legal effect. This is a feature of commissions. They're commissions of inquiry. They get to the bottom of things, They prepare a report, and then the government takes that up and uses that as a basis to to act, to make changes. But these commissions aren't empowered with actually making those changes themselves or making orders that really have any practical effect at the end of the day. It's a a fact-finding and recommendation process. So this is an interesting gloss on the nature of decision, because here we're saying, process looks pretty court-like, but the actual decision is a bit of field from what a court might um, be deciding, and so this isn't going to push the fairness requirements up as much as a very adversarial process that ultimately results in a, you know, binding decision affecting someone's interests might. So that's the first little gloss I wanted to to highlight. they go through the nature of the statutory scheme and you'll see the quite clear um, uh, recognition that the important factor here is that it's the end of the line that there's nothing there's no internal appeal there's no statutory appeal uh, sorry there's no internal appeal mechanism or internal review opportunity you go to court or you accept this report so you know we think this is pushes it up a bit but not as much as it might otherwise. Nature statutory scheme, okay, that pushes the fairness level up higher. Importance. Here you had the sort of a rehash of the arguments about, well, it doesn't really result in any orders that actually have legal effect, so it can't be that important. And the court says, no, For that, that's not true. You have findings that could really hurt the reputation of a public official prime minister of canada high-ranking public official obviously and so i'm not going to downplay the importance of this commission to the reputations of those involved in an issue and that is going to push towards a higher level of fairness Um, then they get to legitimate expectations and you see an interesting application here where the court says look this commission published its rules of practice and procedure and it was fair for everybody to expect these things were going to be followed so these rules of practice and procedure we have to think of they fall in this category of soft law that i talked about before they're not a regulation they're not legislation they're published by the tribunal itself but there's nothing to make kretchen or anybody else suspect they're not going to be followed and so therefore. the the court finds there was a legitimate expectation they would be followed, and there's a problem in how they're followed. So legitimate expectations, again, pushes the thing up. And um, to the extent that it was wholly based on an allegation of a breach in a rule of practice and procedure, that might be the end of the story, but there's more to it that the court was looking at. Finally, choice of procedure. They say, well, there is a clear indication of a discretion over procedure that was given to this body. So you know, a little bit of um, humility in ensuring what procedures are necessary. So the court goes through these factors and says, look, on the whole, I'm going to say that there was a high degree of fairness that was owed in the circumstances. And so what you have here is just a, a good opportunity to review the Baker factors, you know, discussed and applied. And I wanted to highlight that for this case, but I really want to talk about bias in this case. So that's where I'm going to jump to next. So bias arguments are raised for a couple of reasons, and it's important to um, recognize, you know, which one worked and which ones didn't, or which ones worked and which one didn't. So the, the first concern that's raised is that there's a lawyer working for the tribunal who seems to be an active supporter of Khrushchev's political opponents. And there is a suggestion that this gives rise to a reasonable apprehension of bias. And this gets back to that idea I mentioned earlier, where when you're thinking about, you know, um, personal interest or attitude on disposition, these sort of things, you have to think about who in this broad tribunal structure we're talking about, is it the decision maker? Um, is it somebody a little farther removed? Had the decision maker been shown to have strong support for Khrushchev's political opponents that's been you know documented over the years, that certainly could be a problem. But employing a lawyer who had such a disposition is found to not be a problem and not even be relevant the court says this doesn't get you anywhere and you can imagine you know courts being pretty alive to the fact that there's going to be a lot of staff there's going to be people who are actively involved in your judicial process like law clerks and those people are going to bring all sorts of attitudes and dispositions And that can't be imputed to the judge. That can't be imputed to the decision-maker so easily. You would need some evidence that the decision-maker was impacted by this attitude, not simply that somebody that worked for them had a potential disposition. So that one was not found to be disqualifying. But second, there was a book. And this book was written by the spokesperson for the commission. And the spokesperson for the commission got Gomery to write a forward to the book. And by writing a foreword to the book and blurbing and supporting the book, Justice Gomery clearly gave the implication that he approved of what was in the book. And in the book, it's reported that the commission had concluded before the evidence was in that they had everything they needed find there have been a problem. So this is a big concern for bias. You can't make up your mind as a decision maker before the process that is being played out to allow you to make up your mind fairly is concluded. Third, there were statements that were made by Justice Gomery himself to the media. He gave a very ill-advised interview while the commission proceeding was ongoing, which again strongly suggested that he had made up his mind, that he had found there had been misconduct, that he had found Chrétien was involved in this. That's just a massive blunder. A blunder to have done so. But in a sense, it's it's good he was being honest. But the real blunder was to make up your mind before you heard all the evidence. Uh, Inevitably, you're going to feel that things are going a certain way. But you have to remain humble and recognize that you may be wrong and listen to the whole thing. There were 180 some odd witnesses who appeared to this commission. You know, can't make up your mind before you hear them is the fundamental point. I have in previous years shown um, sort of a, another interview Justice Gomery gave where he sort of made a mea culpa for this previous interview. Uh, I'm not going to do so here, but the, the court makes some pretty remarkable findings in saying that there is a reasonable apprehension of bias, and in essence suggests that Justice Gomery became somewhat consumed by the media attention, lost sight of his you know, particular role as being a neutral investigator and commissioner for this important function. So, what's the remedy here? This is a tricky one. I want you to think of this as an exceptional remedy that's ordered in exceptional circumstances. And have this in the back of your mind as sort of an illustration of how remedial powers of administrative in administrative law can be a little bit creative. Because ordinarily, if you were a biased decision maker, the remedy would have to be to quash that, set it aside, remit it for a new decision maker. You know, Lorenz, the, the decision maker in the Baker case. You have to go back into somebody else who's not so predisposed against, um, you know, people in Ms. Baker's circumstances. But here, if you understand the sort of scope of a commission of inquiry, the notion that you have to go do it all over again is, is pretty jarring. You know, do you have to appoint a new retired judge here? 180 new witnesses spend millions and millions of dollars. I mean, these things are insanely expensive. The Cullen Money Laundering Commission, you know, I'm at a a year of call that a lot of the people I work with in in law and law school um, were part of that commission. You know, they hired a lot of lawyers about 10, 15 years into their career. And one of my friends was saying that she was on a Cullen Commission hearing date where she was looking at the Zoom screen because a lot of it happened during pandemic times. And she said, you know, it, it the, the squares were tiny, This all these different lawyers on it. And they were all lawyers. And she was bored. She was one of the lawyers on that who was not speaking. And so she just assumed a rate of like $350 an hour, which sad as it may be, is a very low rate. And just multiplied... How much it was costing you know per minute to have that commission go ahead the number was astronomical and i wish i had it to my tongue but it was she she had some huge number uh, of money that was being spent i just raised that to say go back and do it again is a pretty extreme option when you find there's been an issue with the commission's process so instead what they order in the gomery commission is that any finding about Chrétien is stricken from the report. He was the person who complained. He cannot be um, prejudiced by this report, is the idea. So we'll accomplish that by striking it. Um, Not a remedy that would often come up in a practice but something to keep in mind as an example of sort of creative remedial discretion and sort of how realities can drive judicial remedies. Are there any questions on Kretschian? All right, in the last five minutes, I'm just gonna introduce the question of independence, tribunal independence, and then we'll land that with the Ocean Port case and talking about some of the things discussed in the chapter on Friday. And we'll also be looking at the questions of delay on Friday and the Abramitz case, as well as the Taseco Mines case. Um, all interesting cases, but there's a little bit of flexibility built in because I'm always running a little bit late through this part. So we'll have time on Friday. Um, independence, as I said earlier is when there's external pressure on a tribunal to do something, as opposed to something internal to the decision-maker or internal to the tribunal, which the decision-maker is a part of. Sometimes you have external forces bearing down, compromising the ability of an executive actor to do its job. And so this concept of independence is well-rooted and established with respect to the judiciary and indeed is in the Constitution, or at least the judges have found it to be an implied constitutional rule, that you can't compromise judicial independence because if you're not independent, you're not the judiciary anymore, and the fundamental structure of the Canadian Constitution requires there to be a judiciary. So we can't compromise judicial independence. If the legislature purports purports to compromise judicial independence, well then that law would be unconstitutional. And laws have been struck down on that basis. So judicially, judiciary being independent from the legislature and the executive makes sense, is intuitive, is on the board clearly. Tribunal independence, though, gets a little bit trickier because I'm talking about the minister, maybe, pressuring the tribunal. Well, the minister is part of the executive, too. Inevitably, tribunals have to interact with other parts of the executive. They get their budget through executive decisions, staffing, resourcing. So it's much more difficult to draw a line around when does independence start to be compromised, when you're talking about tribunals as compared to the judiciary. So in the last three minutes, I'm just gonna very briefly review the principles of judicial independence because we're gonna then come back next class and talk about how those do or don't align with the principles that are set out for the tribunals. So just be clear now, I'm talking about judicial independence now not tribunal independence but these ideas come back and resonate and in essence there's four principles of judicial independence that is bound by the courts to be constitutional principles first is security of tenure judges cannot be fired from their jobs absent exceptional circumstances you know you need to have a um, investigation by the canadian judicial council leading to a report which needs to be acted upon by i believe a majority of the house and senate to remove a judge from their position Um, now more often than not if there is an issue that could result in a removal you'll see the judge resign as opposed to going through that process Um, of course notably the recent justice brown resignation but the um, The idea is that when you're a judge, you don't have to worry about annoying the government and losing your job. You have security of tenure, and you know, absent exceptional circumstances, nothing is going to force you to be removed from a judge and being a judge until you become incapacitated or, in Canada, hit the retirement age of 75. So that's judicial tenure. It's really strong. Nothing can, you know, Cause you to leave apps in exceptional circumstances. We'll see a lot of admin tribunals have app pleasure. They can be fired any time. You know, that, is that a problem? Financial security. This is my favorite, because the judges found a constitutional principle. They get paid really well. So it's true. And they, the idea is I would be bribable if, <laughs> if I didn't get paid really well. Does, does that extend to tribunals? We'll see, okay, the tribunals have to get paid really well. You better believe they want to run this argument, but would the flexible dynamic ability of the government to have accessible tribunals be compromised if you had to pay every decision maker 400 grand a year, yeah, probably. Okay, administrative control, this is the idea, judges say that we have to be in charge of the court's administrative process. You can't come in and tell us how to run the building, run the courts, you have to leave that all up to the judiciary. Otherwise, there could be outside in, in, um, influence that came in. And the most important places are things like the Chief Justice gets to assign what case goes to which judge, You know, not the government. The the court gets to decide how its resources that are in the budget are spent. So a government can't come and hamstring the judiciary by you know, putting a lot of financial burdens on how they spend their money or using an unwise way. Um, to what extent do tribunals need administrative control? We'll get back to that. Final one is uh, deliberative independence, and that's the idea that uh, you know, pretty obvious, but you can't have outside pressure uh, in your deliberations, in how you uh, you do your 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 decision making as a judge. Again, it gets complicated with administrative tribunals. So these four principles, I just want you to have in mind. I think with the judge context, it makes sense. They seem robust and reasonable. But let's then land next class. How does this change with the context of the administrative tribunals? Okay. thanks so much.